Uh, I just wonder if we can't master gossip, guys. I don't know what is left. And welcome to Tech Moonshine! Coming to you straight from a cabin in the Virginia woods, Tech Moonshine is the best place to learn about new technologies and how they might affect your life. Your hosts are both experienced technology professionals and, just like Quality Moonshine, they will give you the straight and unfiltered truth. My name is Sean Burns, and I'm proud to introduce the host of Tech Moonshine, Mike Rollins. And welcome to Tech Moonshine, where you will get 200 proof, honest truth, from a cabin in the Virginia woods. And today, Sean, today we have a very special guest, and this this may be our most famous guest ever. We are moving up in the world. We have we have transcended the number of Twitter followers into an extraordinarily high stratosphere. And so I wait, would, wait, pr- President Obama finally answered some of our emails. I, President <laughs> Obama might be next week, and we will ah. talk about uh, technology in healthcare. But um, tonight, uh, nigh unto President Obama himself, we have the eminent and wonderful Miriam Joar. And hey. Miriam, Miriam, tell us a little, little bit about yourself. Tell us, tell us what you do and, and uh, kind of like who, what makes you you. Uh, hey, everyone. So uh, my name is Miriam. I'm a girl and I'm a tech person and a big geek and big dork and big nerd, basically. Um, What do I do? Uh, Currently, I'm a consultant. I help launch companies, uh, particularly around product strategy, media strategy, and crowdfunding. Um, And I'm a tech journalist. I do that part-time, mostly on the Twit Network as a uh, co-host and and guest on various shows there. I also uh, help out some of my uh, colleagues in the media with trade shows when they need uh, some heavy lifting because uh, I love doing trade shows. Uh, so how did I get to that? Well, I worked at Engadget for about three and a half years uh, running all the mobile reviews over there as a senior mobile editor, which is basically means uh, freaking out every week when you get a pile of phones on your desk and figuring out how you're going to review them all. Um, and then, you know, assigning them to people, doing them yourself, uh, and juggling all that, awesome gig, uh, fun stuff. And then uh, actually, before was it uh, after Engadget between my uh, Engadget time and my time as a uh, you know tech um, consultant, I worked at Pebble. I was the head of communications. I ran all the PR and some of the marketing and you know that kind of stuff, mostly evangelism really, uh, but not developer evangelism, product evangelism for Pebble, the smartwatch company. And before Engadget, you know, I've been blogging for, it's going to be 10 years uh, very soon in the next, uh, probably in the fall, uh, about tech, about mobile devices, because I'm fascinated with them. And uh, prior to Engadget, I, I did that as a hobby. And I was a video game developer for 15 years, writing code for various well-known games like Homeworld and, you know, some of the Sean, uh, Sean Murray extreme sports games, some of the... Uh, skateboarding games uh, that you all know and love. So did that, and before that I was in college and did some medical research uh, and grad studies and stuff like that. So I'm a big nerd. You know, I like to take things apart and solder them and code away in a window while I chat to friends on another window, that sort of stuff. So I, I would I would definitely be remiss if I did not uh, reveal that Miriam has inspired quite an amount of lust in me. Um, I, over the years, have listened to her on the Engadget Mobile podcast 
going way back to the day as uh, new, new phones would hit every week and they would talk about what these new phones were and I would think, oh man, I've got to get that phone. I just, I need to have that phone. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, so it is, it is quite the honor to have her on. Um, and today, you know, one of the things that um, mobile devices have gotten better at over the years and, and really um, are starting to shine in is mobile photography. And so we thought that we would have Miriam on to talk about mobile photography in general. Um, and so, you know, I, I think a good place to start is that... Uh, in general, I think if you look at the point-and-shoot category of cameras, which is, you know, uh, I remember back in 2005, 2007, I bought a point-and-shoot because I wanted to document my children. Um, people just don't do that anymore. Mobile photography has taken over that category. Um, yeah. You know, where have you seen mobile photography come from, and, and, and really where do you see it going? So it's interesting because, you know, I never really started liking and caring about photography until I had a camera phone or I, I should say a phone with a camera. And and then uh, that's how I learned my photography. Um, you know, the medium was very limiting when I started, but I think it made me a better photographer in the long run. You know, now I routinely use really high end you know, $10,000, $20,000 DSLR rigs, as well as, you know, just lowly little well, not so lowly anymore. They're really good now. Smartphones and still use some high-end point-and-shoot. Still, still use some interchangeable lens cameras. So for me, it was this. Um, I've always been fascinated about mobile computing, um, and to me, the phone is the ultimate mobile computer because it is. You, you know, it's still it's more useful than some of the smaller mobile computers like smartwatches. It's kind of the universal Swiss army knife. And I wasn't really too excited about the making phone call parts of phones. And it wasn't until they could go on the internet and play back music and take photos that I was interested in. And then eventually the video stuff. So that's where my fascination with mobile comes from. And so it's heavily influenced by the ability to take pictures. So basically, I think where we are today is exactly what you said. I think point-and-shoots are dead unless you look at the high-end point-and-shoots, which are still quite a bit better than the camera, the best camera phones today. But the gap is closing rapidly. And, you know, even two years ago, uh, most entry-level point-and-shoot easily beat phones. Today, it's, it's, a little, it's a little harder. There are some areas that point-and-shoots are still better because they have the ability to have dedicated, large dedicated optics and mm -hmm. sen potentially sensors. But in terms of user experience and connectivity and all that, you know, they're not even close. And in terms of Im image quality, smartphones have like the, it's interesting we're having this conversation now because with the Galaxy S6, the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus, and now the LG G4, we have kind of the trifecta of the absolute best camera phone experience you, you can get. And it is a huge quantum leap over what we had last year. Um, you know, I'm a bit of an Apple fan, but I'm not an Apple phone user. I'm a huge Mac user. And I have to give credit to Apple for really pushing for mobile photography to the forefront of people's, of the, the average people, not people like you, the three of us here, mm -hmm. but the average people's minds this year. And because of that Samsung following suit and LG always having had the expertise to do so, finally doing it right with the G4. And then, you know, we couldn't have this conversation without talking about the decades of expertise that Nokia, which is now Microsoft Devices, brought to the table. 
uh, most recently with the Lumias. But as far back as when I started uh, caring about cameras and in phones, which was the days of Symbian, where they absolutely owned camera, uh, like mobile photography in terms of performance for many, many years. And Sony, we can put Sony aside. My first real camera phone was a Sony Ericsson. Um, and it was before I even went into the Nokia uh, realm that I uh, it, I went to Nokia from, from that because I wanted a smartphone, really. And so I, w I actually gave up a bit on the camera performance to get a smartphone from Nokia that had a good camera, but it wasn't as good as the Sony Ericsson phone that I'd used before that was really a camera phone. It was the uh, W800i, which was a Walkman-branded phone, but it was a clone of the K750i. And the K750i, 2005, was the first camera phone in the world, at least in the Western world, because there had been some in, in Korea, the first with autofocus. And that changed everything. That gave us depth of field, the ability to do macro shots, the ability to, you know, to get bokeh, and a whole bunch of other things that weren't un unfathomable before that. Uh, it was only two megapixels, autofocus, but because back then optics and sensors were large-ish compared to today, the quality was actually pretty damn good. Uh, it wasn't, you know, probably as good as some of the better selfie cameras are today in terms of sensor quality, but add to that better optics and autofocus and you have really some tools to do something. And then obviously LED flash, it was one of the first with the flash. Um, so that got me really excited. The fact that I could take a photo and at the time it was only edge, but upload my photo via email to Flickr in full res <laughs> right there and then that, that was a revolutionary thing you know right. and then with i went from that to a uh, uh, nokia n80 which was a simian smartphone that had a three megapixel camera and it didn't have autofocus but it had a little switch on the back that would let you turn go into macro mode so you could do macro shots and that thing had wi-fi on it and so in addition to Edge, I could upload my photos to Flickr over Wi-Fi when I got home. And then from there, I went to an N95, which, as we all know, came out around the same time as the iPhone and was the mother of all camera phones for many years. It had a 5-megapixel full autofocus lens with Zeiss Optics, a massive sensor to today's size standards, and gathered low light like you wouldn't believe. And it had GPS. It was the first phone that could geotag. And that became a huge deal. I could remember where my photos were taken. And at that point, I didn't want to use a normal camera anymore because now I had the advantage of all the things I used in a real camera, autofocus, a big sensor, good lens with Zeiss, and the ability to geotag and the ability to email them. And it was also a phone with 3G, so I should email them a lot faster now. So, and then the iPhone comes along with this really crappy 2-megapixel fixed-focus camera. And I'm like... Apple, I hate you. I know what you can do and you just betrayed us by giving us the crappiest camera of all time. But they didn't really. I mean, it was okay. It just got the job done. But you know, it wasn't until the iPhone 4 that Apple really got serious about photography. And the iPhone 4 today is still really good because it, it's a 5 megapixel sensor and it's massive to today's standards. And then the 4S went to 8 megapixels and it was even better. And then the 5 and the 5S were even better. And then the 6 really just pushed things to a whole new realm. And one of the interesting things that happened is along, this, along the way here, Nokia stopped making um, uh, Simeon phones. And phones started becoming obvious big, big touchscreen mini tablets with thinner and thinner and thinner. And so 
The optics and the imaging package was constrained by this thinness issue. Nokia for a long time refused to, to do that. They would make thick phones with great cameras, but nobody would buy them because they ran Symbian and they were terrible. Um, but eventually, you know, the might of all these companies, Sony, LG, Samsung, Apple, all working together and developing better sensors and better optics. And also, not, let's not forget Nokia, who finally got in the game with Windows Phone uh, and the Lumias. They all fought with each other to improve the state of the art of, cam of uh, mobile photography. But it wasn't the primary goal. They still were looking at like processor and battery life and other things that weren't to me as important as photography. There were the occasional phones like the 808 PureView or the the 1020 from Nokia that has a 41 megapixel camera that, you know, were camera specific. Samsung in Korea kept making phones with basically point and shoot lenses and sensors grafted on the back of them. But those were outliers. What we really needed was somebody to take the normal everyday camera phone to the next level. And Apple was really the first one to do that. But along the way, Nokia brought us something that blew everybody's minds. It's called optical image stabilization. Mm -hmm. And it is the most important thing you can have on a smartphone today. And I knew that Apple had done it right when they capitulated and finally put OIS on one of their phones. They did the iPhone 6 Plus with OIS, and that's admitting that no matter how much software and processing power you throw at a camera phone, to really stabilize things properly, you need to do, do it the old way and move the lens around and to compensate for the human shaking. And Nokia was the first to do it. LG followed suit. Then, uh, then, then I guess Apple and Samsung finally with the Note 4 and the G and the iPhone 6. And now it's it's a defining factor. Actually, HTC did it with the M7, then dropped it on the M8, and then completely disastrously, completely got rid of it on the M9, which is their current flagship when everyone else has OIS. So it is a bit of a history. And, and I think where we are today is really at a place where an iPhone 6 Plus or GS6 or G4 from LG can easily replace uh, a mid-range point-and-shoot. I shot, I was at Microsoft Build last week. I had to play with HoloLens, by the way, if you want to talk about that. And oh, that could be I, I actually got to live blog the keynote of Microsoft Build for the first time in the history of the universe, nobody's ever done this, a smartphone. And it worked. It wasn't oh. like, right? So I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. You're but, okay, it wasn't crap. And, and people were blown away. They're like, seriously, you're using a camera phone for this? I'm like, haha, yes, suckers. And, uh, and not just like, and not just like a dedicated, like, you know, not like a Lumia 41 megapixel with an incredible zoom, not or like, uh, or not like one of those Samsungs, the point and shoot uh, telescopic lens, you know, grafted in the back of it. Not that like actually just a run of the mill, well, pretty high end, but run of the mill flagship camera phone, not something that was designed to be an awesome camera, just had a really good, awesome camera as part of a better package altogether. And that's where we're at. I mean, it blew my mind. I actually went into this thinking, no, this is not going to work. Like, it's going to be acceptable, but I'm going to get laughed at. But when I saw the pictures that came out of that live blog, I was like, holy crap. We have... That's a, that, that, that's a, a challenging lighting situation. I mean, you've got a dark room. You've got bright lights up front. It, it was unreal. It was like, I was like, seriously, this is 
clearly not as good, but almost as good as my little Canon S95, which was at one of four, five years ago was one of the best point shoots you could buy. And, and, you know, probably halfway to the quality of an RX100. I mean, it's and that's Sony's best point and shoot in case you don't know what it is. And if you don't, you should read up on it uh, because it really is a fantastic camera. Uh, but I mean, this is where we're at. You know, my entry-level NEX interchangeable lens Sony camera, uh, mirrorless, is is an entry-level body and the lenses are kind of meh. Uh, it's about halfway to that performance-wise. And that's wow. unbelievable. That's huge. I know. It's funny because I remember I, my, the very first time I got a I got an N95, a Nokia N95 years ago. It's probably 2007 or 2006. And I remember I never it never occurred to me to use my phone to take photos until I turned it over when I first got it and said it had a Carl Zeiss lens on it, which, you know, at the time I had no idea what that meant. I was like, oh, I, maybe I could use it to take photos, like photos that weren't horrible. And I started doing that, and all of a sudden I realized, hey, I forget my old cameras. I'll take it around. And to your point, I don't think that I've actually owned a camera since then, even though yeah. I'm not a competitive photographer. And my photos, frankly, are are pretty horrible. Uh, it's been amazing how it's just completely uh, gone out of my life. I don't even think I have a camera that's not my phone here in my house anywhere right now. How about you, Mike? Exactly. Yeah. No. I. Uh, we. Uh, I, I mean, I probably have. Uh, a, a a drawer somewhere that has uh, an old Canon point and shoot, and uh, I think I even have a an original flip um, for taking for taking video that was extremely shaky and would make you want to throw up if you watch too much of it. Um, but you know, Miriam, I want I want to bring you back to something. Um, you talk about a lot of the components that are going into these modern smartphone cameras to make them uh, to make them worthwhile and so some of the things you talked about are uh the size of the of the um the sensor uh you talked about the uh the lensing and the optics that are involved in that um and you know you also talked about the megapixels how how have all three of those worked together in current modern um smartphones to become what they have become so I think, first of all, you know, for people who are not familiar with cameras and camera phones and just want to take good photos, uh, there's a number of things that make a good camera phone. The, the number of pixels is like the megapixel count is not a significant thing. Uh, eight megapixels, plenty enough. Even five is plenty enough. The problem with five and eight, five is doesn't give you enough room to really zoom and crop if you don't frame your photos properly. Like right now you're seeing me and I'm framed pretty much so that you can see all my head, a bit of my shoulders and the mic, right? But most people naturally when they take a photo because they don't know and they don't learn, they'll take a photo like this, right? Right. So this is what your subject, and, like and, they don't and, they don't get close to their subject to take a portrait. So for you those need to of you, you couldn't see it at home, Miriam was actually standing on her head in the background right there. <laughs> no, it was amazing feet of gymnastics. It was, not quite true. It, was I, it was kind of a one-handed handstand <laughs> in the background. I, it was quite I amazing. just moved away from the camera so that my face was smaller. So basically what I was trying to illustrate was that a lot of people don't know how to frame photos. So having the ability to crop and zoom is an important thing. And the more you do that, digitally you lose quality, you lose resolution. So that's why 8 megapixels is a pretty sweet spot. That's what Apple's using. But to get 4K HD video recording, you need more than 8. So you need 13 or 16. That is why you see a lot of the Android phones that are coming out and that do 4K video have these larger sensors. But I think honestly, anything over 13 at this point is kind of overkill. 
And um, Nokia has a bit of a weird thing because they're doing some 20 and 41 megapixel cameras, but they're actually using some crazy software to allow you to zoom without losing pixels. Even though the camera has a sensor that's 41 megapixel, the end result shots are five megapixel shots. Uh, but you can reframe them and recrop them later on, and you have the ability to zoom without losing any quality, up to like two, I think two times for the twenties and three times for the forty ones. And so it's you, you can't think of those phones as really that kind of resolution because the end result is really a five megapixel shot. So um, they're kind of the exception. So the megapixel count that's that's not something you should choose your camera by. What matters is the the size of the pixels individually and that defines how many you can pack together in an array like you know xyz like a grid uh, and so the more you can pack you know say you have uh, eight megapixels and your array is this big clearly every single one of those little squares in the array are going to be bigger than if your entire array is this big Right. Right. So the smallest pixel size today is 1.1 micron. That's 1.11 thousandths wow, of tiny. a milliliter, millimeter. Right, which is really tiny. So uh, typically, the best results. Uh, so to so think of it as your pixels as buckets. Right. These individual pixels. Light is like water that you're pouring into these buckets. And the more, the bigger the buckets are, the more light you can pour in one in one in, in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And to get a clear photo that's not blurry, in addition to be able to focus, which is basically uh, get you know like your nose or what's behind me clear, and the rest of it slightly blurry, that's called focus. In addition to the focus, which is done by the lens, you need to be able to gather as much light as you can in a short period of time. So if you have big buckets, you can put lots of water in them, which means you could put a lot of light into your pixels. So that's why two microns is always gonna be better than 1.1 micron. So of course, camera phones need to be thin right. and thickness dictates how far the lens can be from the sensor. For a really large sensor, your lens needs to be further away up here so that the rays can go and touch and focus the sensor for each pixel. Now, if you put the lens closer to the sensor, the rays of light can't really go and touch these edge pixels very much anymore. So you need a sensor that's smaller. And so that's why the, the there's a compromise to be made. And the sweet spot is about 1.5 pixels, uh, so 1.5 micron pixels for a modern camera phone. That's what the G4 is using. The Galaxy S6 is using 1. Uh, sorry, the G4 is using 1.2. The GS6 is 1.1 and the iPhone is 1.5. So that gives you an idea. So the iPhone only has eight megapixels, but they're big pixels. And then there's the HTC M7 and M8, the ultra pixels, which use two micron pixels. And that's why they, they were so great in, in low light because in the same amount of light, you can gather more of it per pixel. So mm -hmm. without getting too technical, the size of the pixel matters. Nobody ever tells you what a camera's pixel size is. So you need to do a bit of digging but ultimately, none of this matters so much if you don't have a good lens. And so you need a, a, a high-quality lens, preferably glass. Uh, and and multi, by the way, it's not just one lens. It's a package of about six, five or six lenses all put together that are floating with a little magnet that lets you move it up and down for focus. 
that and with respect to the fixed sensor the sensors right here you got a bit of space then you get this lens that's mounted on an electromagnet and you can move up and down for focus and that, that group of lenses is usually five or six lenses put together most of the time in plastic so Zeiss obviously is an expert lens manufacturer that's why Sony and and Nokia and Microsoft devices use them uh, some phones are now starting to have glass lenses because the manufacturing of glass is more expensive, but the techniques have improved, so it's a more feasible in mass quantity than, and better results than plastic. Uh, and OIS, in addition to letting the lens move up and down, lets the lens move sideways and front and back. So basically, you now have the ability to have the lens follow the subject in real time as the phone is moving mm -hmm. around. And it gives you a much better result because you can now open the shutter longer when to fill your buckets of light when you're in low light. So you can actually take long exposures without getting a blurry mess. So that's why OS is such a big deal. So all these combines I, are I'm really important. The, the external lenses that a lot of people have tried to start selling you that you clip onto your iPhone, you clip onto your Android device that they claim will improve your zoom. I've always been very skeptical that they actually will help because they're not in tune with the internal focusing of the camera. Do they actually help if you get you have an external clip-on uh, lens they, for your phone? They don't help per se as that they change your field of view. So they change how wide what you see is. So some of them are fisheye and give you a, a wider field of view. Some of them are tele and give you a slightly wider than the default. And some of them are like macro. So they actually give you good close-up shots. So they're just, they're not a gimmick, uh, but they change the optics and they obviously add another piece of glass or plastic most of the time, which can add more distortions to your photos. So they come with advantages and drawbacks. You just have to know what they're what they're about. But there's one last thing I want to talk about in terms of that that chain of items that make your photography good, and uh, and that's the the f-stop, the aperture, how mm -hmm. big the hole is that lets the light through the lens, and the the bigger it is, uh, the more light comes th uh, through, right? And so that's ideally what you want. But the bigger it is also means that you're getting a much narrow band of stuff that stays in focus. So you want that to be artistic, but if you're trying to take a photo and also get the landscape behind you, uh, it's uh, like a portrait and get the landscape behind you. Uh, a, a large f-stop, uh, sorry, a small f-stop number, which is a large opening, is going to be more difficult um, to, 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 to get the photo right with. But a large opening gathers more light. There's more water that can go through to your buckets, right? So mm -hmm. this is a big war that's going on right now. Uh, to give you an example, the iPhone 6 isn't what they call an f over 2.2 lens. The uh, a GS6 is f over 1.9, and the, uh, the G4 is f over 1.8. Now, anything in the one point, like anything better than 2.0, smaller than 2.0 in terms of numbers, is getting into like really high quality lens territory and really hard to do. It's very common on DSLRs, but kind of almost unheard for off for phones. That's how you. It, I know, but I I don't know if it's an artistic kind of a thing, if it's a fad. But the the whole depth of field where you get yeah, the yeah. just the just the center of the subject in focus, Correct. and then you get this nice Matty Hayes blur in the background for everything else. Yeah, it's called the bokeh, B-O-K-E-H, what the defocus stuff in the background. Okay. Um, a lot of it has to do with uh, the lens angle, like how much of the scene the lens can gather, 
Um, not just the uh, the f-stop, the opening, but there's a whole bunch of formulas there. You can read it up on Wikipedia, just basic photography. Just look at lenses and photography lenses and Wikipedia. Yeah, the, the whole theory is there and how that stuff all works. But so all this is hardware, but none of this matters if you don't have a, 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 a like a sophisticated computer that can crunch through all these the data that's coming out of these pixels and turn it into something that looks right. And that's called image processing. And image processing is an essential part of any digital camera. And it was really shitty in the early days of, of camera photography and it's gotten really, really good because we can throw a lot more compute power to it for really cheap now with microprocessors being as powerful as they are. This is, so that, this is the reason that my iPhone gets hot when I continually mash the, uh, the, the, yeah. the, the picture yeah. taker button, right? Yeah, probably well, that. And also, the fact you're taking photos of your grill, so you're kind of holding a little bit too close to the grill there, man. Or the you're still, back, maybe a foot. <laughs> or the still. Plus, plus, you have you probably if you have geolocation turned on, your GPS kicks in and, yeah, and it, it gets a little yeah. warm too. But anyway, the point is that the software is just as relevant and important, and so. You know, then there's a third aspect, which is how responsive the camera is and how it's good at setting, how good is it at setting things automatically? Like, what's the shutter speed at your pick? What's the ISO? The ISO is basically the sensitivity of the sensor, like the volume, if you want. How much light am I letting into the sensor mm -hmm. with a big volume knob? And and so the ISP, the image processor, can change that volume knob from, you know, film level of ISO, 100, 200, which is traditionally what's been used in film to all the way to thousands of ISOs, which let it really see a lot in low light, but adds noise because the sensors get warm and the warmth of the sensor generates what looks like noise, like TV noise, you know, the, the snow on TV. So the, you want as the least amount of that as possible. So, uh, you know, the ISP does a lot of this, uh, you know, adjusting the gain of the sensor with the ISO, and and focusing also focus is a thing where if you want to focus on your nose the lens has to kind of move back and forth until it stabilizes in the right spot and it has to do it as fast as possible so all this together adds up to an experience right and and the experience fails when you're mashing the camera button and there's a delay because you miss your photo because the person who ran in front of right. you is done running right so that's for a long time there was a huge delay in camera phones in the early camera phones it could take a, almost a second or two to just to focus and then eventually take the photo, then process the photo, and then store it on the memory card or the internal storage. Now we're down to less than, you know, 10 milliseconds, which is one-tenth of, you know, one-tenth of a second uh, of, of, of delay. So you actually are much better, li much more likely to get the photo you want to take when you just pull your phone out and mash the button. And most people do pull their phones out and mash the button. And uh, Apple was the first to re-recognize that this was this mattered probably even more than the hardware and the software you put into your phone in terms of all that science I talked about. Mm -hmm. So I hope that explains it to your listeners a little better. No, I think that's great. Um, I, I know, you know, I, I personally right now am using an iPhone 6 Plus, um, and I have taken it all over the world at this point. And I have gotten some amazing. Okay, Mike. Shots first of it. all, down the street is not around the world. Okay, well, let's let's be Sean, honest here. Sean, when when you're holed up in the cabin for most of the time, uh, watching the still, when you get down the road to take a picture of the coon in the woods, um, the 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 uh, that, that's around the world. But 
Um, so for your I, listeners at home, Mike actually never, she never left the shack. There were some fumes coming out of the still. He hallucinated and thought he went down the street to shoot some photos, some squirrels. In fact, he was sitting in the corner taking photos of his feet. So anyway, sorry, Mike, I didn't mean to interrupt your story. Well, well, so to 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 completely contradict Sean, which is something I love to do, um, <laughs> I I had the opportunity after this world after this year's Mobile World Congress um, to go see Sagrada de Familia. And mm-hmm. we caught it. We caught it right on the. It was a beautiful sunny day, and I got this shot uh, in the Sagrada de Familia. I got many shots that were just amazing, but I got this one shot where, um, you know, with my little iPhone six plus, where the uh, light is coming through the stained glass windows and is painting the ceiling multiple colors and. It just blew my mind after I took it and I looked at it and then I posted it and everybody completely freaked out over it because like two years ago, that shot's not possible. Right. Two years ago, that shot is muddy. Two years ago, that shot doesn't capture those uh, image, those those uh, colors and the clarity that it did. Two years ago, there's not automatic HDR where it you know compresses them all into one image. Um, two years ago that shot didn't happen at all. And so now I'm holding this marvel of technology in my hands and I am able to take what amounts to a breathtaking shot that, you know, I, I'm going to print and hang on my wall um, because it is such an amazing shot. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and all of that, like that shot convinced me that, you know, if I hadn't been a, a, a believer beforehand and, you know, I've, I've I've take I took a an iPhone five around Hawaii, and you know Hawaii is one of those places where you can just kind of wave your hand and just take pictures and you get amazing shots. Um, but I got some amazing shots off just an iPhone five in Hawaii, um, and it it just it feels more and more exciting as the camera game gets stepped up um, uh, year after year. Um, yeah. And I- I think we're going to get to, you know, we're going to get even closer to the SLR level in the next five years. Uh, and, and of course, you, you know, it's still a whole huge, there's still a huge dimension of better, you know, comparing a phone, uh, even one of the best phones today, versus like even a high-end point shoot like the RX100, right? And we're still not there. But the point is that it's that the gap is narrowing, but that also means that you can now make point and shoots that are really incredibly good. Like, right. you know, that's why that's why uh, uh, Sony makes the A7 series, which is a full frame, compact, mirrorless camera that blows away DSLRs from three years ago, and it's tiny. And uh, I mean, it has interchangeable lenses and everything, but it's it so it's not tiny like a phone tiny, but. You know, so I think we're we're learning so much about camera photography in terms of technical achievement that all that's going to translate for if you're a photography buff like me, all that's going to translate to even your DSLRs and stuff as well. So there's one thing though that these DSLRs and these point and shoots can't do that the the camera phones can do, um, which is that after I take a shot, I can post process right then and there. Right. Um, and I know for myself, um, I will typically, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm notorious for taking hundreds of photos when I go somewhere. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of scan through them and toss out the ones that are just complete crap and then end up with about 10 or 15 that are really good. And at that point, I start running them through software that's right there on the phone 
that can process them um, to maybe either, you know, maybe you get a shot that you get really good lighting conditions, but the, the colors are muddy. Um, and so you decide that you'd like to convert that into a black and white. Um, yeah. Or maybe you end up with a shot where, you know, um, the, the lighting conditions weren't quite perfect. And if you had just a little bit more brightness, uh, the, the whole image would pop. And so, you know, you raise the brightness level a little bit, um, right. which, you know, you can do a lot of that with, you know, uh, apps like ViscoCam. Um, I use a few Snapseed others. is my go-to, yeah. Snapseed, okay. I use a couple others, um, Photo Toaster. Uh, Mextures is a fun one, though. That's kind of a, uh, I, I'm, I'm curious if the whole uh, uh, filter thing is going to be a passing phase eventually. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you know, in, in terms of like touching the colors to make them a little bit outside the range of normalcy. Um, how do you feel about that? I think filtering is fun. I, I mean, look, the way I see filtering is every photo you take has gone through a filter. The filter is the entire imaging chain uh, from the hardware to the software image processing to, uh, you know, your eye, in fact, you know, like when you frame that shot, sure. you filtered, you decided to take some stuff out, you decide to focus on something and not something else. So photography is really ultimately all filtering. So adding a filter to your photography is really just, you know, I don't see I don't see what's wrong. Of course, you can overdo it, do it wrong. That's all very subjective and an aesthetic thing. I love the ability, as you said, to be able to tweak your image on your phone the same way as phone gives you geolocation and gives you the ability to upload. Um, I think what we're going to see is professional DSLR cameras running, you know, in addition to all the processing they do and and dedicated camera type stuff that they do, they're gonna start being essentially little Android devices and be able to run apps and and let you do that on the camera as well. Okay. Um, I mean, not all cameras are gonna do this because the pros still wanna use a laptop to with the retina display to do their image editing because you know they want a bigger screen to work with. But sure. I think that like Samsung has the NX series of interchangeable lens mirrorless cameras that has uh, there's essentially an, an the assam that was called the NX. Uh, there's there's one of the NX models that uh, I think it's the. Let me think. Samsung Galaxy NX or something like that, and it has uh, it has an Android phone in a <laughs> point and shoot like in a sorry interchangeable lens mirrorless camera body. And so, you know, you get the best of both worlds. I think this is going to become a thing. I mean, you're starting to see more and more cameras have Wi-Fi and GPS built in, even though they have no, don't have the ability for you to edit photos on the camera, like of the higher-end ones, because that way you can just access them with your laptop directly and get right. the photos out and right. work directly on a laptop. The, but conversely, the phones are now supporting RAW, like the G4 and the Lumias have raw support and now the m9 as well just finally officially has raw and raw means that a lot of the image processing that ends up creating a jpeg photo the jpegs are compressed because they take less space and they're easy to email and but raw is like the uncompressed it's like the difference you know between an mp3 and a cd basically and the 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 nice thing about raw is you can change the white balance loss like you're not actually 
changing the pixels. You're just changing a parameter in the raw image that tells the uh, photo editing software, this is the white balance mm -hmm. I want to use for this. Mm -hmm. And so you can do a lot of non-destructive editing with raw, although the file sizes are much bigger. And so, um, you know, once we start getting raw editing tools on phones, that's going to be when I'm going to be excited because then uh, you're not lo you're not losing quality like you're not you're and you can go back because you still have the original as a raw does does ios 8 support raw uh not yet okay i think it does in the apis but i'm not aware of any camera apps including manual which is my go-to ios camera sure. app supporting raw fact check me on this guys because i'm not 100 percent sure okay um, yeah i'm not either but but raw right now as far as i know is still reserved to a few very few android phones uh the nexus 5 nexus 6 uh m9 galaxy not galaxy sorry uh g4 and i think that's it for now okay. oh and all the and all the lumias pretty much all the lumias now um from the I, all the lumias that say pure view on them I take away from that the very important idea that pretty soon my DSLR camera running Android may be able to run Candy Crush Saga, and at that point the entire world will come to an end. I agree. I agree. It's um, it's gonna be a crazy world. Well, I use I used a Galaxy camera for a while, which is a, a point and shoot camera that's running Android from Samsung. It's not the best camera in terms of the the imaging parts, but it's interesting to be able to run full android on that thing and play candy crush on a camera yes i've done it so maybe the end of the maybe it's we're all in like past the end of the world now having this podcast together king is king is just rubbing their hands together greedily as we speak um well you know is there are there any uh are there any parting parting gifts of wisdom that you would like to give us in terms of like what makes a good what makes a good shot what makes a good uh, so yeah let's go through the process i go in my head every time i take sure. a photo automatically yeah. so that you guys can follow this right uh number one clean the lens right these lenses are exposed in the old days there was a little shutter that could protect the lens on the nokias for example but now to make the phone thin it's just glass and usually it's sapphire glass which is unscratchable uh or really hard to scratch so use your t-shirt use the sleeve of your hoodie or something to wipe to wipe the lens clean of any fingerprints you need to do that. You need to have an automatic habit of pulling your phone out of your pocket and wiping the lens. Then, uh, hopefully, most modern phones let you take a phone a photo really quickly from the lock screen. Either by on the iPhone is you know you hit the home button and you can slide up. There on the, there's a little uh, camera icon you can slide on it. Mm -hmm. uh, on the Galaxy S6, you double tap the home button. On the Gal on the LG G4, you double tap the volume up uh, or down down sorry button on the back. Uh, since the buttons are on the back and that just brings up the camera when your phone's asleep and at that point you can you know make sure your camera is in, in full auto unless you're like me and you shoot a lot in manual mode and you have your set you know where your settings are and you can change them really fast but auto is you know an auto HDR all that leave that on because you know nowadays the software's gotten so good at making these decisions for you the next thing you need to do is really really important and it's it's like simple thing like frame your shot just take one tenth of a, unless you absolutely have no time, it's like you're gonna miss this incredible moment, then just mash the button. But if you are trying to think about how it's gonna look, think about framing your shot and think about the rule of thirds, which is basically divide, there's actually a grid you can turn on on most phones to show you third lines, so basically a nine, nine squares and try to make sure that, you know, the important stuff kind of fits in a third of your photo 
and you'll see you'll get better shots and make be sure you get close to what you can if you can't get close then you have to use zoom and you're, lo you're losing some image quality but if you can relocate yourself relocate yourself don't just take that picture and have that person be tiny on the picture so then you have to crop and zoom uh, another thing to do no matter what and this is particularly applicable in low light in the dark or indoors is be steady if you have to brace yourself what that means is let me illustrate really quickly because we're on video uh, if i pull out this g4 um you know hold it like this with both hands brace this arm you you know your non-dominant arm against a door frame a car a a, a road sign something that way you you're, you have this tucked in with the elbow thing going on here where you know and then you lean against something and it's going to give you and, and hold your breath and then you're going to get some pretty steady shots now you're going to say if you have ois like this phone has why do you need that well ois can't fix all the problems and sometimes it's nice to just be steady anyway and it's a good habit to take so just be steady as you can and honestly you know beyond that the rest of it gets kind of just technical and and you know about adjusting things and trying different things if uh, your subject there's a big distance between your subject and what's behind it you know maybe tap to focus by tapping the screen on the area you want to focus on before you take your shot and that's about my recommendations to get started with these tips today and an iphone 6 or one of these great new android phones you can't fail you're gonna get great pictures every time and you're gonna look like a pro taking them you know so that's what i would do very very good so awesome that's good advice um sean you know my big takeaway from that is that we should probably not drink before we go on our photo expeditions in terms <laughs> of also dude you're not allowed to geocode the photos that we take of the still again because like last time it was true. a whole thing with police and fbi police, so no yeah, more that of that was terrible that wasn't very good <laughs> at all um so all right miriam you are going on the 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 photo expedition of your life you are only allowed to take one smartphone camera with you and it is tomorrow which one do you take uh the guy the lg g4 today i i think uh, it's funny you say that because I'm actually going on a road trip tomorrow uh, and, and it's exactly the question I asked myself. I'm going to take more than the G4, but I had to make a decision as to what is the phone I'm going to actually prioritize and take most of my pictures with on this trip. And it's a really big toss right now between the Galaxy S6 and the G4. And the iPhone 6 Plus is still obviously in the running, but it's not quite as good in low light as these other two because it doesn't have a f-stop that's as good. Uh, the reason I want to do the G4 over the Galaxy S6 comes down to two things. Um, the G4 has shutter speed control in manual mode. That's me do long exposures, uh, like, you know, the trails of lights. Um, it also has RAW support. The Galaxy S6 currently doesn't have RAW, even though it's a phenomenal camera and it does not have shutter speed. You can adjust the exposure in manual mode and you can adjust the ISO, but you cannot adjust shutter speed. To me, that's a bit more important. So, you know, I'm, I do a lot of manual shooting. Once you get good enough, you will want to do that yourself too. Uh, but, um, so, you know, don't get me wrong. You can't, right now, it's, it's really a toss between the GS6 and the G4 in terms of if you just mash the button, you want good pictures on an, on a, on an Android phone. But um, for my needs, I think the G4 just hits the mark a little bit better. Also better battery life. 
Uh, and there's obviously other little things like it has faster sure. autofocus and a few other things, but yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Um, so how can people find you? How can they reach out to you? How can they talk to you? So um, everybody online kind of knows me as by my, my, my handle, which is Tankerl, like the comic book, but without the vowels because uh, Tankerl spelled fully was already taken back in the mid 90s when I got online. Well, I was online since the early, late 80s, but when I got on the web basically and started having to pick handles, uh, T-N-K-G-R-L, uh, you know, at gmail.com to email me, .com to get to my blog, at Tankerl for my, for my Twitter without the vowels. It's basically where you'll find me online pretty much everywhere. And so at least check out, uh, if, you get, if you forget one thing, just go to my, my Twitter, at TNKGRL, and you'll find a link to my About Me, and then from there you'll find my blog, my YouTube, my my everything i i i would say follow miriam on twitter it is a fun ride for sure um <laughs> you will get good pictures and occasionally uh very colorful uh ranting to go along with it <laughs> um so that uh that brings us to our tech topic overload segment and uh, tech, topic case, overload. tech Topic Overload. In case you've never listened to the show before, Tech Topic Overload is where we as your hosts will go through and we will discuss uh, in hopefully a very brief amount of time, unless you're Sean, in which case you will probably rant for minutes and minutes and minutes, um, <laughs> about a topic that comes to us over the week, last week, last two weeks, maybe last month. Um, and I will kick us off this week. You know, I interestingly, um, you know, last week's episode was about which kind of got released this week on Monday, but that's beside the point. Um, Hangover. We, talk <laughs> <laughs> we, talked, we talked about um, wearables in general as kind of our wearables redux um, uh, uh, issue where both Sean and I expressed our skepticism on wearables. Um and, you know, I, I stumbled across this David, the, this uh, blog post by David Gemmel, where he says that he feels like um, the, the, the Apple Watch has really freed him up in terms of being able to triage his communications. Now, my big hold up is that, you know, as a, um, as a, a smart watch wearer with both Android um, Wear and Pebble, um, I would find myself in notification hell as, you know, servers would go down or a tweet would get picked up and retweeted a thousand times. And um, it would drive me kind of crazy. Of course, I get communicated against a lot throughout the day. Um, and so my, my beef was that um, I need to have the phone manage, like, via some kind of threshold for me, um, what notifications hit my wrist. David Gemmel on the other hand, uh, took the standpoint that um, he's he's not being overcommunicated against and that, in fact, his Apple Watch is allowing him to leave his phone behind and live life in the moment um, and completely, you know, either dismiss things that don't need to be talked, talked about or uh, decide to defer them until later. Um, which I think is a refreshing, a refreshing take on uh, wearables in general, and um, I am very happy to hear about that. Um, so maybe my Apple Watch experience, whenever it decides that it would like to arrive, 
will be similar. So, uh, Miriam, I'm going to yes. turn it over to you. What 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 tech topic overload topic would you like to talk about? I think I want to talk about uh, Hololens, Microsoft's yes. uh, AR technology, really briefly. Um, so I went to Microsoft Build last week because uh, you know as an ex- ex full-time media and part-time media i still have lots of great connections i get all the phones to play with and stuff microsoft really loves me and uh you know I, I was a dev on xbox for many years so i know the microsoft people from that and also i was uh, very connected to the nokia world before they got absorbed by microsoft uh, as a blogger so i got kind of connections in microsoft in different ways and i always end up getting invited to build which is a developer conference and um I got invited this year to a 90-minute session behind closed doors with HoloLens where I was able to develop an app for HoloLens um, and wear it and try it out. And uh, I couldn't take, you know, you had to leave your computer, your smartwatches, your phones in a locker behind you, like really behind closed doors. But I got, you know, I'm allowed to talk about it. And uh, the experience was really, really amazing. In the same way as, uh, you know, I've never really was huge about AR. I mean, I get what it's about. I think it's cool, especially, you know, you hold your phone, you can superimpose stuff on the cam- what the camera sees and, you know, but it wasn't really until I experienced AR through something like HoloLens that I really understood what it could be. And when I, when I realized that Microsoft bought Minecraft, it's like they're going to be able to mesh the real world and the Minecraft world on top of one another uh, seamlessly. And that's going to be really exciting. And, and you know, it's not something people are going to wear walking around the street. It's really something people are going to wear to play games. People are going to wear for productivity to replace their PCs at home or in their offices because it basically creates a virtual universe. You can have, instead of having three physical monitors, you can have three virtual monitors hovering in front of your desk, a keyboard and mouse, and use Windows 10 in these three virtual monitors through your HoloLens. And that's a very 2D interface. But imagine you're a 3D designer. You can now design things in 3D and actually see them in 3D and manipulate them in front of you while still seeing your hands. Uh, while seeing a, a flat surface of the wall next to you that's a white virtual whiteboard of notes you've taken, right? There's some really powerful stuff there. In the same way as I went to Mobile Congress and saw the, um, the uh, what's it called, the, the HTC VR goggles, the re something revive uh, the vive yeah uh the vive blew my mind it's the first time that i actually used vr and i didn't feel like it was a gimmick that there was no latency that the refresh rate was good enough that i didn't feel nauseous after 15 minutes um and to me hololens was the same for ar so all i have to say is hard to describe until you experience for yourself but it blew me away it was a completely wireless experience um, it's really, really well developed. It is, you know, definitely not ready for prime time in terms of a commercial product, but uh, for developers, yes, it is ready, and we're going to start seeing some really cool stuff. And I think I've seen the future of computing in terms of productivity and, you know, even games. So is this? So there you go. Is is this what I'm going to be using five years down the road instead of monitors and a keyboard and? Very likely, and I think that uh, you know, unless somebody completely botches it. Uh, you know, it's it, in a way Google Glass botched it, but it was only AR. And it, first of all, it didn't do AR; it didn't superimpose to the real world. Right. It was just a notification system, and it was one eye only. And it, it, you know, eventually they'll make Hololens the size of these awesome glasses I'm wearing. 
But until it gets that small, I think it's going to be hard to be a commercial success because it makes you look like a complete idiot. But at the same time, for a device that's still a prototype, or I mean an early version, it's very slick and well done. It doesn't feel heavy. It's comfortable. Um, it really immerses you in the experience while still letting you hear and see everything in your real world. Um, and you can choose kind of how much AR you want on top of your real world in terms of brightness, in terms of loudness. So it's really, really, I was really impressed. I didn't expect it to be quite that sorted out. And it's clear that Microsoft is putting a lot of effort and energy into making this their next big bet for Microsoft as a company. As, as a person who is not afraid of looking like a complete and total idiot, I am down with this idea. Yeah, so. and I think you should be. It's good. I Sean. know, and he doesn't achieve it very often, so he needs some help. <laughs> Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so my tech topic overload is not so much a rant, but an observation about something that's crazy ironic. So if you haven't heard, um, the app Secret is shutting down. Uh, it was yes. the first <laughs> an popular anonymous network where you could post things and nobody would know who you are, so you could say whatever you want, which of course means it was almost exclusively used for gossip. And, and not douchiness. Always, and, and horrible things that you'd say about all the things you'd do, you'd say online when nobody knows who you are. We know how that goes down. The thing I find amazing is not that they failed. Uh, it's not even that the founders took some money off the table or they were valued so much. It's that technology, we do so much and we couldn't, they couldn't do gossip. I mean, gossip is like one of the most fundamental parts <laughs> of the human experience. Yes. And they couldn't do gossip. Like we talk about how we're going to send people to Mars and we're going to, you know, create these uh, uh, augmented reality glasses and we can't even figure out how to do digital gossip. I think that uh, you know, it does not bode well for the future of online social networking. So uh, I will not miss Secret. In the early days, it was funny because you'd learn interesting things like rumors about companies and stuff and then it just became horrible cesspool of humanity. Uh, I just wonder if we can't master gossip, guys, I don't know what is left. Gossip. <laughs> It's it's terrible. People magazine cries out for this on a regular basis. So, um, you know, as as is we are wont to do, um, we like to close the showdown with a sponsor. And uh, Miriam has uh, delightfully decided to fill in this week <laughs> uh, in order to pimp uh, something that she has received recently. So, Miriam, why don't you tell us about who is sponsoring Tech Moonshine? This so, week? Uh, you know, our sponsor for uh, Tech Moonshine is uh, E3 Supply Co. out of Brooklyn, uh, New York. And uh, they are a maker of fine custom motorcycles and custom leather goods. Uh, and so the way they reach, I don't know if you guys, the listeners can't see it, but my Moto360 here is wearing a really cool custom uh, watch face by E3 and a uh, custom leather band, natural leather with black hardware that matches my matte black Moto360. Um, and so I'm only bringing them up because they pinged me out of nowhere and said, hey, we see you wear lots of smartwatches on the various Twitch shows you do. Uh, we're not tech savvy people. We we basically built custom old motorcycles and some cool leather stuff. Artisanal, we're a bunch of hipsters in Brooklyn. You know, We're having fun with it. But lately we've been making... Uh, bands for smartwatches for Pebbles and Moto360s and LG G watches and G watch R's, 
and we you wear so many of them we'd like to send you some samples would you be interested and i'm not going to say no to free samples uh and so they sent them to me and i have to say they're definitely artisanal and handcrafted and beautiful and they're not very expensive so just google e3 supply co and check out their bands for uh for their uh smartwatches and uh if you're interested you know ping these people and, and maybe buy some um that's that's really it there that's all i have to say about e E3 Supply Co. Awesome. E3 Supply Co. Go check them out. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we will bid you adieu. We hope that your moonshine dreams are filled and wonderful and that you have a wonderful and spectacular evening, day, night, or perhaps dusk, whichever point you might be listening to the podcast. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for joining us for Tech Moonshine. You can continue the conversation on Twitter using the at TechMoonshine account or find us on the web at TechMoonshine.com. You can also chat with Mike and I directly. Mike's on Twitter as Rollins.io and I'm on Twitter as S. Burns. Special thanks to Jeff Holtzinger, our banjo picker, and his track Bent Nails, which you heard at the beginning of the podcast. You can find him on SoundCloud using the username Jeff on the Banjo. Please join us next week for more 200 Proof Truth about tech. 